0: because we're made in the image of God, there's this desire to do and to be significant. The problem is, is we're like Adam and Eve. We go to the tree of knowledge of good and evil to try to become like God instead of resting in the tree of life. So our significance is not based on the fact that, you know, you've sold hundreds of thousands of books. It's not based on the fact that I'm a pastor NFL player. My significance is based on the fact that Jesus Christ took my place on the cross, that Jesus Christ died for us. Our significance is God saying, you're worth it.
1: That was Derwin Gray, and this is the Things Above podcast. Well, our guest today is Derwin L. Gray. He is um, a former professional football player uh, in the NFL, founding and lead pastor of Transformation Church in South Carolina. And he graduated from Brigham Young, uh, so graduated from BYU, and was the 92nd pick in the 1993 NFL draft and played for five years with the Colts from 93 to 97 and one year with the Panthers in 1998. And he is married to his wife, Vicky; They've been married since 92. And you guys met in, at BYU and have two children, daughter Presley's son, Jeremiah. So, Derwin, welcome to the Things Above podcast.
0: Well, thanks for having me. It's truly an honor to uh, to be with you. Uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a huge fan of your work and just appreciate what you're doing for the body of Christ. So, I'm uh, I'm as happy as a baby in a candy store.
1: <laughs> That's wonderful. Hmm. Well, the feeling is mutual. I have followed you in your work and uh, in your book "Limitless Life," which we're going to talk about, which I resonate with so much in terms of what you're teaching, and uh, I love the honesty of your your stories and uh, your vulnerability and, and, and so many things, which we will be able to talk about. But I thought, you know, for our listeners who maybe don't know you um, clearly, I think something that would, that people would find intriguing because that that little thing called the national football league is pretty darn popular. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about the fact that you played in the NFL for five years, uh, mostly with the Colts, not with Peyton Manning. I do want to say that because you, I believe you left the Colts in 97. And Peyton. I left in 98, and that was the year that
0: Peyton got That drafted. was the
1: year he was drafted, right? So you missed mm-hmm. him. But you did play with Jim Harbaugh, right? I did. And, I did. And Jim, and Marshall Falk. Uh, Jim
0: Jim Harbaugh, Captain Comeback, was our quarterback. Uh, I played with two Hall of Famers, uh, Marshall Falk and Marvin Harrison.
1: Yes. Yeah. So the, the, you got to play with some fantastic players. But I mean, talk a little bit about that. I mean, life in the NFL for someone. Maybe listening, who maybe watches the game? I mean, what what is that world like? I mean, no, oh, that was a bit ago, but not a tons changed. I mean, what was it like being a getting to the show, as they say?
0: <laughs> well, you, you, you know, it, it's uh, it's one of these things that uh, for me, as a professional football player, um, you really didn't have a lot of time to think of it in those terms of what's it like to be there. Um, there's such a sense of urgency to to be a professional and what I mean by being a professional is um, doing the things that it takes to not only make the team, but then make help the team win. And so you're so consumed with a sense of urgency of, of preparation, which is not, not only practice, but game film and taking care of your body and getting treatment and all those facets that go into it. And, And so while I was playing, It was more of, you know, this is my job. I am a professional football player. Therefore, this is what you do. So you don't have a lot of time to really sit back and go, wow, this is awesome. So now that I've been out of the game for 20 years, oh my gosh, it is so awesome. It is so cool. Um, I look back to when I was a little boy, the first team I tried out for at nine years old, um, I didn't make the team. I got cut. And... I've really never heard of Pee Wee League people getting cut, but I was that kid who got cut. <laughs> you <know, laughs> you write about I, um, that in the book, right. My gosh, I yeah. only started one full se- season in high school. So now that I look back, I really see the providential hand of God in my life uh, because it doesn't really make a lot of sense that I was that guy um, to make it. So now... I look at it with incredible fondness. I look at it uh, just think in terms of, man, there's 7 billion people on the planet and only 120 something people played the position I played. So that literally made me one of the best at what I did. at such a minute level that it's incredible. I remind my kids of it all the time. You know, I'm not sure how impressed they are, but I'm sure impressed with it. (laughs) But, you you know, um, so I, I didn't grow up the church. I didn't grow up with a Christian understanding. I had no clue what the good news was. And God uh just wrote a beautiful tapestry in my life to use football to ultimately draw him to to myself. So so football for me was more than a game. Ultimately, it determined who I was. It gave me affirmation, it gave me a false sense of love, it gave me a sense of significance. But the problem with the NFL is it stands for not for long. And so the weight of knowing that one day would end, the yeah. weight of injuries beginning to take away my capacity to play at the level I wanted to play, and then the the moral aspect of knowing I needed things for forgiveness, knowing I didn't treat nor love my wife the way she deserved to be loved, God used the football and the combination of all those things. To ultimately draw him to himself, because I had a teammate. Uh, His nickname was the Naked Preacher, but his real name was Steve Grant, and Steve Grant was a committed follower of Christ. Um, He walked the walk, so it made me listen to the talk that he talked. And ultimately, after five years uh, in the NFL, and ultimately five years of him sharing the gospel with me, on August second, nineteen ninety-seven, in a small dorm room in Anderson, Indiana, in training camp. I called my wife on the phone and I said, I want to be committed to you and I want to be committed to Jesus. And uh, that's when I was born again. You know, uh, you know, John Wesley talks about a, a warming of his heart. Mm. And uh, I, I really can't put in the words other than there was this overwhelming sense that that I was loved. And uh, I cried for like three days straight. And I'm still crying. It's just overwhelming um, how good and gracious mm. God is.
1: And so, okay, I, I can't quite let it go, Derwin. Naked pre- preacher? Preacher, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Was he a player?
0: That was he, he, he was. His name was Steve Grant. He was a 6'2", 245-pound linebacker. And so Steve grew up in gangs in Miami. He escaped Miami and took a football scholarship to West Virginia. He was an unbeliever, and he had heard about this thing called FCA, and he had found out that the head coach – for the West Virginia would go to the FCA. So he wanted to impress the coach and he would go to to the FCA, even though he didn't know what FCA was. And he would go week after week to impress the coach. And one week the coach wasn't there and and Steve Grant was sitting in the front row and the Lord grabbed a hold of his heart and he prayed to receive Christ and his life was utterly transformed. And uh, he left the University of West Virginia and he only had two requests of God don't let me get drafted by the Colts or don't let me get drafted by Green Bay. And he got drafted by the Colts. And when he did, he said, my goal is to win as many people on this team to Christ as possible. And so I was i was one of those guys. And, and from Steve Grant's ministry, there are several of us that are pastors now. Wow. Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So,
0: uh, yeah. So the naked preacher, he would take a shower dry off, wrap a towel around his waist and, uh, you know, develop conversations with teammates about Christ. And, and he was so artful and skillful about it as he, he really thought as a missionary, what is it that connects with these guys where they were? And, uh, I was attracted that he wasn't pushy, but most importantly, I was attracted to the fact that, um, he was salt and light. Like, like, like Mm. he gave flavor and he preserved the locker room. And in the darkness, here's this beacon of light and you were just attracted to it.
1: Mm. So he was the real deal. He was the real deal. Yeah. And there's something to that, isn't there, Derwin? I mean, when you see somebody, we talk a lot about, um, I had, had Jan Johnson on this podcast and we were talking about how that life is more caught than taught. I mean, you, you, you catch it from somebody other than it's not just what they teach. It certainly is that, but it's just, you, you see that life in them or that light as you're talking about that salt and you just go, there's something going on here. I,
0: yeah. You know, and, and I, I think that's something that you and I both resonate with is that in the first century Jewish context, a rabbi would have his apprentices or his students, his disciples, and they would watch what he does. They would listen to what he teach taught. And then they would go out and reproduce what he did. And for us as believers, he still wants us to sit at his feet. Mm -hmm. He still wants us to uh, uh, um, receive what he teaches, but then he empowers us to reproduce what he did. And so as a football player, I, I often tell our congregation, let your students, let your kids play sports, even though if they're not good. If they're not good in sports, let them do band. It's important to be a part of something that you study, you practice, and then you have to actually do it and it matters. And so with football, you study all week, you practice all week. Why? So under the lights on Friday night, you actually have to implement what you have learned. And I think as Christians, we've almost taken the faith in a Western modern sense of I'm going to regurgitate, I'm going to memorize these facts, but I'm not really going to live by faith. And so living by faith is something that's caught. Uh, you can teach it, but ultimately you have to catch it in the sense of this has to be go beyond my head to my heart to my hands.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and it, al- it always is. I love that. So, wow, that's amazing. You, uh, and, and you became a pastor. But l- let's talk about it because you write about it in the book that I think it was when you were injured. That and I don't know which when what stage of the career was, but you were injured, and so you had a lot of time on your hands, and you just started reading the Bible. Yeah. And from that, yeah. So um, and did, is that where you said God gave you the, the first time you ever had a vision of you being the pastor of like a lot <laughs> in front of a lot of people? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah,
0: so uh, so towards the end of my career, I, I was I was getting injuries ankles, ankle, knee, ankles, knees, and uh, so I would spend a lot of time in a cold tub and uh when i came to christ um i just had this overwhelming passion and sense to know him and to love him you know i figured that as a football player if i studied a playbook i could play good in the game well god must have a playbook that play that playbook is the bible so as i studied the bible um the holy spirit just used that to just draw me deeper and deeper into this love relationship with christ and everything I learned, I just began to share. Um, I didn't realize that I had a, a teaching gift or the gift of evangelism or the gift of shepherding, the gift of leadership. I didn't I didn't know those things. They, they they just came out of me. And so there would there would be times where I'm in the cold tub or the shower and I would see myself speaking in front of thousands of people. And these people were black and white and young and old and Latino and Asian and just Every demographic, and it was strange to me because I was a compulsive stutterer. Um, I didn't want to be a preacher because speaking was such a hurtful place in my life. You know, as a kid, you get made fun of in class. I didn't ask questions because I didn't want to be embarrassed because of my stuttering. Um, And so it's pretty ironic that God uses me as a pastor. A former stutterer is now a preacher. Uh, but not only that, um, I scored a 16 on my ACT to get into college, which is which is very low. It's the bare minimum. And today uh, I have a doctorate. I'm working on book number four, signed a contract for book number five. And I'm just as surprised as anybody. I am blown away by God's grace.
1: It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I mean, I love that about how when you just get caught up in this kingdom life and and all of these I mean, I, I I have this image in my mind of like a seed. A seed. You look at a seed, you think, well, I don't know what that is, but then that seed could become this amazing plant, right? And and it has within it all of this incredible. And that's what I'm hearing when you're talking. Derwin, I'm hearing, like, you didn't know you were a leader. You didn't know you could speak, be a pastor, be. I mean, all of these gifts that were in you that you didn't know were even there, and here they they come forth, and even the academic side, yeah, gets turned on. All of that stuff g- connects, and it's just. It's such a beautiful and encouraging story for people who, you know, I think are, there's probably s- several listeners out there who who relate to that journey of thinking, you know, I maybe I didn't think I had a chance to do much, but then, but well, hey, maybe with the power of God, I can do more than even I can imagine, which is, <laughs> well, that's a nice segue into the title of your book, Limitless Life, right? You're more than your past when God holds your future, which really fits with your own story, doesn't it? I mean, that's... It does. Yeah.
0: And so what I found is that uh, there were a lot of people, we were different, but our stories were the same. Um, And what I mean by limitless life is Jesus is eternal life. Jesus is what uh, eternal life looks like for a human being. And so... Limitless life is just another word for eternal life, and eternal life in god 's kingdom is not something we have to wait for, uh, but we get it the moment we we say yes to him amen um and so i just I just want to encourage people that um, you know your story may not be like mine, but in god 's redemptive story, whatever role he gives you, whatever sacred vocation or task he gives you. He will bless you with the gifting. Whatever vision he gives you, he will give you the pro vision to carry out loving God and loving your neighbors you love yourself through your time, your talent, and your treasure. And I think there's a lot of people who, well, if I'm not the best, if I'm not the greatest, then I really haven't been successful. So if we really take that approach, the Apostle Paul was not very successful. His churches turned on him. His biggest house churches were usually about thirty people. Uh, Jesus's followers ran out on him. Um, all the apostles except for uh, uh, John were martyred. He was thrown on an island in Patmos. I mean, that poor guy. I mean, he didn't even have Netflix on that island, so I'm sure he was bored out of his mind. <laughs> but uh, but the point is, is I love the analogy, and Jesus uses the seed itself that 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 God. Uh, plants his seed in us. Now, here's the thing with seeds, though. In order for seeds to grow, they have to be
1: buried. Mm, That's right. It has to die.
0: And, um, you know, in my book, I share a lot about, man, this is how I got buried. Um, What I thought was sent to destroy me, God used to make me. And so a lot of times, just as Jesus was buried, we too have to be buried to come out of the tomb, and out of that tomb actually becomes a womb of growth. And uh, that's why I wrote the book, is I I have a hunger and desire for the body of Christ to be so soaked and saturated in the love of Christ that we don't even have to try to be forgiving or merciful or kind. It's a natural reflex because of His grace.
1: Mm. Absolutely. Abs- I love that. Yeah. And, you know, and you talk about that so beautifully in the book. And I, I, as I mentioned, I really love the book and I love, I love the title. I love uh, the concepts and the ideas within it. But one of the things I want to talk with about you, and I I really love, and you start out pretty early in the book, talking about labels and how labels have this incredible power and um, talk a bit about that, about some early labels you got put on you. And and how God used your own journey and story to kind of ret- retell what that label, I mean, take away that label and replace it with yeah, something else. Yeah,
0: you, you know, um, I think it's important for everybody to understand that when we're born, uh, we're born the offspring of Adam. So we are born spiritually dead. We are in a pursuit for four things. Love unconditional, identity, significance, and mission. And if we don't find those things in Jesus, we're going to find those things in idols that are going to give us labels, and those labels are going to be destructive. So, so for example, uh, one of my labels was, you're dumb. You know, I was a stutterer. I didn't do well in school, um, so you're dumb. Another label that I put on myself is unwanted. Um, you know, my father uh, wasn't involved in my life a whole bunch. My mom had her struggles. My grandmother primarily raised me, which I'm super thankful for. Uh, but I felt unwanted. Now that I look back, you know, my mom was 17 when I was born. My dad was 19. Both my mom and dad had mental health issues, substance abuse issues. So I, I have grace for them, but the enemy used that. And I didn't grow up hearing the gospel. I didn't grow up hearing who I am in Christ, and so there are a lot of people, believers and unbelievers, who allow labels to dictate and de- and determine them. And you know, there's some people who uh, maybe they've been sexually promiscuous before coming to Christ, and so they feel as though, well, well, Christ has forgiven me, but this area of my life is still untouched by His grace, and the enemy wants to use that. And so, what God does is He strips away our old labels. And just like the label being stripped away from a piece of cloth, it hurts. It's painful because the reality is, is we get used to our labels, even though they may be destructive. And so God in his grace will rip those labels off and give us new ones, primarily mm. that we are his beloved, uh, that we are his children, um, that we're trophies of grace, That that mm. in Christ we're righteous, we're forever God's friends we are completely and utterly forgiven mm-hmm. our sins have been thrown into the sea of god's forgotten memory and so as we dwell upon the redemptive work of christ we fall in love with him but not only do we fall in love with him we begin to love ourselves and to love ourselves is not a position of arrogance but a position of wonder a position of awe to go while wow, everything that i am is because christ is a great i am all that's true about him is true about me And the overflow of loving ourselves is to love our neighbor compassionately, that people begin to matter more to us because we matter to God and they matter to God.
1: Mm, That is so, preach it. I love, I love everything you're saying. I mean, you said it quickly, so I want to go back because I want to be sure that our listeners didn't miss what you, you talked about, the four things that sort of the, the, the Adamic state, the state of you know being being born into this world. We all have it. I think you said loved, uh, identity, yeah, significance and mission,
0: significance and mission. Yeah, say more about yeah, that because is, I think
1: that's yeah. I mean, if if what you're saying is true, and I think it is, then it, these are indelible. I mean these these are these are built into us. These hungers, these drives, mm-hmm. um, are not something yeah, I, that I, yeah
0: i would i would I would go on to say that they are intrinsic to what it means to be a human to to be a fully functioning human means um, I am loved unconditionally, I have an identity that is unchanging, I have significance, and then I have a mission and so only God can love us the way. We've been created to be loved. Now, my wife and I, we adore each other. We've been married for 27 years. She's the greatest human being I know. But the reality is, is my wife cannot ever love me like Jesus. My wife cannot love me redemptively. Only Jesus can do that. And so, what my wife and I will often say is, um, you know, my wife. Understands I can't love her like Jesus. That's why she worships Him and not me, and that's why I worship Him and not her. So God's perfect love allows us to love each other in our imperfection, and so we all need to be loved. And that's why Jesus says the greatest command is love God, love your neighbors, you love yourself. And then we need a identity. Um, identity determines function. So often throughout the scriptures. We see that before God tells someone to do something, He affirms them with a identity. Case in point, Abram. I'm gonna change your name to Abraham, which means father of many. Um, Jacob. I'm gonna change your name to Israel. Hey, uh, uh, you know Simon. I'm gonna change your name to Peter, the Rock. And so, what Christ does, because He's the Son of God he changes our names to daughter, our son of God as well. And that's a, that's a position of belovedness. That's a position of the same way God the father loves Jesus. He loves us. So our identity is not determined by the title on our door, but it's determined by the blood of Jesus that spells beloved son, beloved daughter of God. Next, we need significance, like, 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 because we're made in the image of God, there's this desire to do and to be significant. The problem is, is we're like Adam and Eve, we go to the, tr- the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil to try to become like God instead of resting in the tree of life. So our significance is not based on the fact that, you know, you've sold hundreds of thousands of books. It's not based on the fact that I'm a pastor or NFL player. My significance is based on the fact that Jesus Christ took my place on the cross, that Jesus Christ died for us. Our significance is God saying, you're worth it. That's what makes us worthful is God saying, you are worth it. So no matter what I accomplish, it can never be eclipsed by Jesus's death on my behalf. No matter how bad I fail, God's work on the cross is always my significance. So that leads to a posture of worship. And then lastly. Uh, we all need a mission, purpose. So often we think our purpose is to do a job. No, no, the job is how we express our purpose. Our purpose is to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And our neighbor is every ethnic group, every gender, male, female, every social economic class. And so our purpose, our our mission is to love God, love our neighbors as I love ourselves, so great commandment and great commission through the great grace of God is our purpose through our time, our talent, our treasure
1: mm, that's good, so we are all missionaries in that sense we are we have that 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 defining mission that's so good that's brilliant you know you're on, you're so honest in the book, and I appreciate that I think that that must really connect with a lot of readers. I know I did. But you talk about, you know, that, that early experience is that you touched on with an absent father and mother and raised by your grandma. And, and you said that, um, you know, that, that as early as you, I can remember, you write uh, an afraid label yeah. in my heart was there that that label of afraid produced this fear of rejection and it, and it limited mm-hmm. you Uh, Talk about that. I mean, what did that afraid label produce in you?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, of course, now being 48 and and studying and, you know, just learning enough about psychology and human behavior, just (laughs) enough to be dangerous, (laughs) is you begin to see how your past has shaped you. And so I just remember as a little boy, like, you know, like, why doesn't my dad come to my games? Like, what's wrong with me? You know, why is my grandmother raising me like, like, what's wrong with me? And so at about 13 years old, I decided, well, screw that. I don't don't care what's wrong with me. Um, I'm going to be successful and I'm just going to shut all that other stuff out. And um, but the reality is, is I tried to bury my past, but my past buried me on the outside. It looked successful. I mean, I'm the American dream. Uh, but on the inside, there were, there were things I was afraid to do. Like number one, I was afraid to risk love. Even though I was married, I still kept my wife at a distance. I still didn't show her all of me because my life history was, if you get close to me, you eventually could hurt me. Um, Secondly, uh, you know, in college, Like I risked, I did not risk choosing a harder major because I was afraid I wasn't smart enough. Um, I was, I was, I was afraid of many things. I was afraid that who am I going to be if I lose my job? Because so much of my life was I've achieved so much that if I don't keep achieving, I'm just going to be that poor kid from the hood that people would laugh at. And, um, you know, it's one of these, it's one of these things where, where you get to the point and you get sick and tired of being sick and tired of being afraid. And eventually you, you, you bring that to the Lord and you say, God, I'm, I'm afraid. Will you help me? And it's not an instantaneous transformation. Mm -hmm. Uh, but God slowly, but surely walked alongside us and he says, son, it's okay to be afraid. I got you. Trust me. I'm strong enough. I'll see you through it. And one of the and one of the things that I'm learning too, um and I know you're a big advocate of this the theology as well is God doesn't often deliver us immediately. He uses the trials, he uses the burden, he uses the hurt, he uses mm-hmm. the pain to conform us to the image of Christ, which is his goal. So nothing's wasted.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, and it sounds like, I mean, all, all of the experiences you had, I mean, I, I see that as God taking those experiences and, in a sense, transforming that. But again, not overnight because, you know, you had that born again experience. I had a similar one. Um, I didn't grow up in the church either, but I, you know, August of 1980, um, I gave my life to Christ, and boy, did my life just mm-hmm. change. But still, some of those old narratives, they still hang around, especially the childhood ones that I think those ones that get in early <laughs> you know and like you said we we as we get older we know enough to be dangerous but looking back on my own life i remember you know seeing certain events and and like when i was 4 years old my mother had tubercular meningitis and mm. she was in the hospital for 6 months and now my little 4 year old brain didn't know what to do with that i mean i little kids couldn't go to the hospital back then they were afraid it was unsanitary so i couldn't see my mom except from a window, second floor window of a hospital for six months. And, you know, I had no idea, but I picked up some narratives also mm-hmm. of being afraid of being, you know, um, of being alone, uh, and, and a bunch of those things you pick up along the way that even as I became, uh, a person in whom Christ dwells and delights, as I like to say, yeah, and, and I, and that was very real. I still had to go, yeah, but those old narratives still hang out. You know, they still, it's, they're still there, but I I love how you put it there when little by little you start to address those and and uh, and Christ comes into those experiences and I love how you put it. He holds your hand and says, in my case, that to my little four year old version of me, hey it's okay, you know, I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I got you. And uh Yeah. It's a it's a beautiful yeah. thing, isn't it?
0: It is. It it is. And I think there are more people that deal with fear, whether if it's a chemical imbalance that produces anxiety disorder Or if it's um, you've experienced trauma, Um, you know, there's uh, uh, one out of four, I think it's one out of five young men are sexually abused, one out of three young ladies. And so you have a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. And uh, Jesus is a healer. Um, Jesus is present. Jesus knows what our suffering is um, Jesus wants to walk alongside of us. He, he wants to be with us in the midst of it. He is Emmanuel. He is a, I'm with you kind of a God.
1: Absolutely. I, I, I want to ask this and I hope it's not too personal, but, uh, you mentioned earlier that you, you know, had a stuttering problem. You don't seem to (laughs) now. So, I mean, what, uh, you know, it's,
0: um, it's really interesting. Uh, People will ask me all the time like, well how did that, how did that happen? Like, what did you do? What class did you go to?" And I'll say, "Well, what happened was when I realized how much God loved me, the sacrifice He made for me, and the fact that I am now interwoven into his life and that I am as righteous as Christ is, I began to love myself and I gained a new confidence in myself. And as that took place, I didn't stutter as much. And then they'll look at me and kind of turn their head sideways, and they'll say, well, what did you do? And then I'll explain the same thing. And so when I talk about loving Mm -hmm. yourself or loving yourself correctly because of who you are in Christ, my new identity uh, changed me. It, it, It changed my confidence. I I think a lot of my stuttering was rooted in childhood trauma, and one of the things about growing up in a poor, violent community is that you have forms of PTSD. So violence and poverty and brokenness has psychological effects on you as well. And so I think for me, uh, what happened was, as I began to love myself because of who God said I was, I got this new confidence. And it literally transformed how I communicate.
1: Well, Durman, that's a, a beautiful story. And I totally believe it. Absolutely. And and that's the God I know uh, who transforms us. But what would you say to someone who maybe has really struggled? I mean, they've they've done a lot to try to deal with their stammering or stuttering and they haven't had any real success. I, I mean, I could see someone maybe saying, gee, if I just had the faith that Dermot has, or I just love myself like he said, that it would go away what i mean what would you say about that
0: yeah what i would what i would say is first thing is nothing um i would hug the person and i would say gosh i really know how you feel and you know this is this is this is what god has done in me um but to be a stutterer does not negate the activity and presence and power of god in one's life um i don't understand why jesus told lazarus you know get up wake up wake up from the dead and why didn't he do that for everyone right um, there are other areas in my life where I've prayed and fasted and no change so in God's sovereign dispensing of healing uh, he's chosen uh, to do this in me but what I would say to my brothers and sisters who sh- who 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 stutter is that even in that God is conforming to image of Christ that you're not damaged and that he's gonna bear fruit
1: through your life. Mm, I like that. That's great. It reminds me of Paul's thorn in the flesh too. I mean, Paul, when you said you prayed in other areas, Paul prayed, man, he, he did not understand. And we don't know what that thorn was. I'm grateful that we don't know what it was. Cause then if we did, we'd say, well, I don't have that. But in the fact <laughs> that we don't know, everybody can kind of go, Hmm, I yeah. have that too. I, everybody has a thorn, right? That thing. So, but that's beautifully said. God still can use that. It doesn't mean that were broken. That's right. Um, one of the things that you you I, I loved something you said in the book about, uh, and I'm just going to read your own writing if that's okay. But yeah. you wrote, uh, God has a stunning vision for your life, but he but if he showed it to you all at once, <laughs> it would be too much to handle. In His grace, He gives small glimpses, gives us small glimpses at a time, and His unimaginable vision for your life can only under underfold as <laughs> unfold as you have the courage like David, to move into the unknown. That's certainly been my experience. I, I, I think about that a lot, Derwin, that if, if I could if go back in time and if God had just said, here's a crystal ball, this is going to happen, it would be too much for me. It would be, wh- why did you write about that and what in your own experience uh, helped you understand yeah, that? Yeah, you know,
0: um, well, I think the first thing is driven by the text, is you have uh, David, a little shepherd boy, and at 13, you know, he's anointed as king. But yet he spends so many years shoveling uh, sheep poo and messing with bears and lions. And he's the he's the run of the litter. Uh, but yet God had a big plan for him. Right. And so it doesn't mean that we're all going to be king of Israel. It doesn't mean that certainly. But I think the bigness of the vision is God forming the heart of Christ in you. Like, I think we underestimate what it means to walk in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness and self-control and operate uh, with spiritual gifts for the glory of God, our joy for sake of the world. And so mm-hmm. that's what I mean by,
1: yeah.
0: um, like, I'm blown away that I've been married for 27 years. The first marriage I went to was my own at twenty one, you know. I'm blown away that, that 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 a kid who scored a sixteen on his ACT is writing books That's a doctor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I'm blown away by a lot of those things, and so so that's that's what I mean. I I think if God would have would have said, okay, Darwin, you just got saved, and you're going to plant a church, and it's going to be really really hard. People are going to tell you no one wants to attend. A multi-ethnic church. Uh, um, you're not going to have enough money to plant the church. You're going to have to pray and fast. I, I mean, I couldn't have handled it. And I think that that's the case for all of us. Is that God just wants us to be faithful? And like King David, it's often under the dark skies where we're alone with God that He's forming us and shaping us. So what happens in private? is what produces what takes place in public.
1: Mhm. Absolutely, yeah. That's Yeah, I mean I think I it's a little corny but it stuck with me. I think I heard a preacher say it early on in my Christian walk, but it's always stuck with me is that is the illustration that uh God leads us kind of like uh the headlights on your car that th- the headlights in your car they they're just far enough, you know, they they don't go forever and ever, but they just they're, they're far enough in the future that you, cause you need those headlights, right. Mm-hmm. To see where you're going. And it, it, it'll give you a couple hundred feet maybe. Oh. Um, but you can't see beyond that because you just wouldn't be able to, uh, to do that. And that's kind of been my own experience that here, I you know, whether it was a, as a new Christian, uh, if I'm with you, Derwin, if, so, if, if, if <laughs> as a new believer, cause I was is, is somewhat similar to you, I was dead middle of my high school class of, of like, I had a high school class of 600. I was 300. I mean, I was oh. Mr. Mediocre. Right. I mean, and, uh, one of my best friends, Tim Galatch, Tim listens to this podcast, but he likes to, to joke that, you know, if, if, if someone back then has said, yeah, Jim's going to go to an Ivy league school and he's oh. going to get his doctorate and he's going to write and he's going to do this and that. Mm-hmm. And, and my friend, Tim says he, he tells my story to tell, to tell other young people that are maybe thinking, I can't do this, that, yeah, you can. Yeah. Let me tell you about my friend Jim, you know, totally. or my friend Derwin. And it's a beautiful thing. But again, if I'd known right away, I would have just, I, no way I could have handled it. No no yeah. way I, I could mean, have.
0: I mean, you know, the arrogance, the the fear. Uh, I, I mean, like, uh, if I'm correct, your, good, your book, um, The Good and Beautiful God, hadn't it sold like 200,000 copies?
1: Yeah, yeah. If it's not more? It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like... A,
0: I mean, could you have imagined that? Say, ten years ago, or, or fifteen years ago?
1: No, no. I, I still, I actually don't believe it. I, it's like, did that really happen? No, yeah. I don't. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, that's
0: pretty good for a middle of the road, mediocre high school student, and, and 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 I, I think that's what the Lord loves to do, is because only He can get glory. Then, like, we can only point to Him.
1: Yeah, I like that, and that that. that yeah, that's exactly right. I, another li- sentence from your book, another line from your book I really loved, and it fits with what we're talking about now. You're right. God only stitches new labels in the hearts of those who are humble, no- humble enough to admit they need new ones.
0: Yeah,
1: I think humility is so crucial. Yeah. It really is. I mean, I, and, I, and I wish I learned, I mean, because it's daily. For me. It's like, I me. it's like I have amnesia. I keep forgetting that, that my posture before God every single day needs to be you know, Lord, I'm your servant. Here I am. I need your grace. I need your power. I'm nothing yeah. without you. And, well, uh, and,
0: and, and one of the primary way that we know our posture before the Lord is one of dependence is our posture before people, because how we treat people is an act of worship. And, um, you know, I really sense within the body of Christ, we have lost a sense of humility that humility is like a tattoo that should be on us you know as jesus yeah. washes the feet of his disciples even judas who would betray him that's the king of kings the lord of lords that that humility flows out of almost this you know lord i'm a beggar empty hands i bring simply to the cross i clean and um god you know the the good physician did not come to Treat those who think they're well. He came to heal the sick.
1: Right, right. And I, I just, I, I, love the overarching scope of the book, and it re- reminds me of that verse. You know, God is able to do more than we can ask or imagine, and and He has done more in your life, more in my life, than either one of us could have imagined, and He can do that for anybody's life. And and so I'm just so grateful for you and for your testimony, for your life, for your ministry, Derwin. It, it's it's unbelievable. I have one last question for you. You the book's been out a few years now. Um, what's one thing that's been maybe surprising to you, or a response to the book that you uh, maybe yeah. didn't see coming when you were writing? Because I know as a writer, we often we're writing kind of for our. I mean, we're just writing, and it something comes out, and we maybe even don't know don't know what we're going to write before we write it. I've heard writers say that, and I know yeah. I wrestle with that. But then the book comes out, and then. I think it was, oh, one of my friends, maybe it was Richard Foster, but somebody talked about how, or no, it was Dallas. Dallas talked about once that book is done, it just goes off and has its own little life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, I, yeah, it was Dallas. He said, he said, you know, you write a book and then it, it goes off and it's almost almost like one of your kids. You don't know what it's going to do. It just goes out and it's doing stuff while you're sleeping oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's it's what what are some responses to the book or the impact yeah. that the book has had that was you didn't see coming?
0: Yeah, well, that that's a great question. and It's timely. Uh, this Sunday at Transformation Church, actually going to have a young lady and I'm going to interview her. Um, about four years ago, she was just in a season of just chronic pain, um, just chronic pain because of some health issues and as a result she really sunk into depression and anxiety and was just in a just a bad bad place well her parents and her dad happens to be a pastor said hey you know we're 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 going to go to hawaii and just get away and so she was on the beach and she pulled out the my book limitless life and she was reading through the book and she got to the chapter Where I write about how my wife, when she's pregnant, goes through a condition called hyperemesis gravidarum, which is compulsive vomiting for nine months. I mean, you just feel like you have the flu for nine months, and it was just a horrendous, horrendous time. But in the midst of that time, um, God just did incredible things in my wife's life and my life. Um, It's just amazing. But for this young lady, as she read the book. Um, It deeply, deeply affected her and helped her get out of the the dark place where she was. And so this Sunday, she's actually going to be at Transformation Church, and I'm going to interview her. And the the title of my message as I interview her is called Waiting on God in Chronic Pain. And so I'm just thankful that the Lord, um, I wrote the book and it went off on its own and it touched her life, and so it helped her get out of anxiety and and depression, and to get the help that she needs. It's it, it's it's still hard, but her perspective has changed. And she said, "You know, I had a troubled faith then, and a troubled faith is better than no faith. But mm. God has restored my faith."
1: Wow, isn't that great? And I love that. I love how God can use a book. How um, you know, it, it's ink on paper, right? In one sense, it's it's nothing but just letters all thrown together on on paper but it but the holy spirit takes that and and uses it to touch some i mean it, it as a writer and i know you know this i mean the, the spirit inspires us as we write it inspires us in the process of doing it and then somehow that same holy spirit uses that the book itself as the readers encountering it and then they're connected and it's just such a testimony to god's grace and power because I know I don't have it in me. I mean, I, you and I both have been talking about our very humble hmm. kind of beginnings. So it's clearly, it's clearly the act of God, not, not our own talent and skill. Hmm. Amen. Um, but yeah, amen. But I'm so grateful for you. And, and, and as I said, I've been following you and, and reading your stuff and, and I'm just so grateful for you. And I can't wait till the day we get to meet face to face. That's got to happen. I'm going to make it happen.
0: Indeed. I'm uh I'm looking, I'm looking forward to it as well, and uh, I, I appreciate your ministry, and uh, just thank you so much for having me on the show, and hopefully uh, I can come back on when my next book is released in June of 2020.
1: Oh, let's, let's just get that on the calendar. It's going to happen. Absolutely. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you, Derwin, and uh, God bless you and your ministry, and look forward to the, to the next book and when we can be face-to-face. Thank you, brother.
0: Thank you, my friend. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Derwin Gray. I know I did. And I hope you join me next week for episode 63. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that if one day you're asked, what's on your mind, your answer will be, things above.